Hi there, I'm Mike Pereira, and he's Michael Clark, and we like talking about movies. And this is Mid-Credit Scene, a podcast where we talk to local people in the community about the art, technology, and cultural impact of filmmaking. This week we're back on stage at the Apollo Cinema with Pam Patel from MT Space. Hope you enjoy. And now, on with the show. And we're back, live at the Apollo. Um, thank you for sticking with us. We are super excited to welcome our next guest, Pam Patel from MT Space. Pam, Ooh. thanks so much for being here. <laughs> thank you for having me. We're so excited. We've been wanting to have you on for a while, so it's really exciting to uh, to make this happen and then to do it uh, live. Um, at the movies. At the movies. <laughs> Uh, we now return to, sorry, we were between the, in the break we were joking about uh, City TV and how memorable Mark Daly's voice was, <laughs> and uh, if you're of a certain age, it's just burned into your brain, you can hear him saying, we now return to, or late great movies. We now return to RoboCop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, why don't, maybe we can start with, uh, a, just very quickly, a little bit about you and kind of what you do for people who don't know. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm the artistic director of a theater company based in Waterloo Region called Empty Space. And um, while I am an actor and a director and a producer and a curator and all those things, actually my training is in voice. I went to Laurier for uh, classical music and I'm an operatically trained singer. So I like to bring a lot of voice work into the stuff that I do, which is which is kind of neat because I, I like uh, I like that um, we're going to be seeing this this movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's basically a radio play turned into a film, and and I just was thinking all these things of like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do with their voices because that factors so much into how you kind of you know animate what you're saying when people are only listening listening orally, and if that's going to translate to the screen too. Yeah, part of the brainstorming for this uh, for this chat was, you know, we were thinking, could we get a Foley on to sound effect this whole discussion? <laughs> you know, someone just tapping shoes on a pl- like a piece of wood as Pam came up to the stage. <laughs> uh, too costly, though. We have no budget. So we are living in this kind of renaissance of the voice, though, like radio is having a resurgence. Podcasts, especially over the pandemic, have you know, they're one of the most popular mediums um, to the extent that, you know, half of YouTube is just recordings of people recording podcasts. Um, and so it's it's this nice moment where people are appreciating good audio and, and like having really strong opinions about like, oh, I don't like, like they're using the wrong mics. <laughs> like people who have no idea what they're talking about, they're like, I don't like the way that mic sounds or, or that that was recorded <laughs> on a Zoom call or something like that. Oh my god, that reminds me of one of the early experiences I had trying to create something when COVID hit and we were in lockdown. And I was um, in the middle of this uh, process for this multidisciplinary music piece where one of the artists had created this enormous pendulum full of sand. And it would just swing and cover the floor in this amazing pattern that was just piles of sand. And there were two of us who were opera singers who would basically be scoring this and moving through the space. And so we're like, okay, well, we're commissioned to do this thing. So let's just see if we can do it 
in lockdown in our homes. And it was the most ridiculous setup I had because in order to hear the other singer in real time, we had to do a phone call. I couldn't do Zoom. I couldn't do anything else. We did a phone call. But then I had a little Zoom audio recorder so that my voice could be recorded in as best quality as possible. And then I also had a Zoom call going so that we could see the other performers. <laughs> and then I also had like a recording going on my phone so that I could be filmed for the filmmaker to put everything together. And I was like in my den and we had to record like after 9 p.m. because of the lighting. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> That's incredible. Didn't you direct a play over Zoom too during the I lockdown? Did, like, yeah. you, you directed it. But like the play wasn't on Zoom. It was in a physical space. Correct? Well, or yeah, I mean, the play was, I, I had directed actually a version of the play for a stage. And then we thought, okay, well, let's see if we can just adapt this to Zoom. And the play is called Chelsea's Story, actually. And it really worked out because it's basically uh, in a classroom setting where these students are putting on a play. <laughs> so it's a play within a play. And we just kind of adopted this like Google Classroom sort of atmosphere. And I got so much feedback that the play actually worked better online. <laughs> and so wow. we decided we're going to keep it that way. And actually, it made the piece so much more accessible because suddenly we could yeah. translate it into all these other languages too and do captioning and everything so much easier. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. But what was it like? wrangling though like at least when you're on stage all of your actors are in one place they're on stage they're all together you can you know yell and tell them that they're not hitting their marks or <laughs> I do yell careful yeah. a light's about to to fall off at the top of the stage and hit you what was it like wrangling all of those people when they're just little squares on a screen <laughs> um yeah it was really interesting I mean I work with amazing actors so there was no question about you know them bringing their skills but the things we'd have to focus on was you know well can you go to a different part of your house or a different part of your room or or can you find a lamp or something so that you're lit better and um because they were playing multiple characters we had them all on two devices so we actually had to rehearse them switching between the two devices, figuring out the audio for that, making sure that, you know, just a slight tilt of the angle of another camera would make them look like a totally different person. And then I also did a lot of voice work with them because I'm like, you know, on stage, you really use your body to put forward the different characters you're playing. But on the screen, you really have to bump up the way you use your voice. Wow. And and I like I would assume that for them, you know, with their training, they're trained to project as well. And then when you're in a microphone, projecting is probably the last thing that you want to do. You yeah, want to exactly. enunciate instead of like making sure that the back seats can hear you. Oh, you gotta like really pull it back. It's it's basically like acting for film or television. You gotta, you know, we call it acting through a straw. You have to act through a straw. <laughs> you okay. know, it's not just it's not just your voice, but it's also, you know, how animated you can be. You have to really pull it back and make it as natural as possible, you know. Right. I was going to ask you a bit about that to to talk a bit about the the differences from your point of view of performance in in like theater or in in live settings versus performance for film and television because ultimately they're they're both performance, but they're I think so different in my understanding of those mm -hmm. things is they're almost so different as to almost be uncomparable <laughs> because of the way yeah. that you have to do things and like the, you know, you're not repeating the same line over and over and over again in a, in a stage play. You have to do that in rehearsals, but then there's this final on stage piece. And yeah, totally. so I don't know, I was just to get your, your perspective on kind of what are some of those differences? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've done a little bit of film and television and 
it is really like a lot longer days, but once you've gotten the take, you're done, right? You're done with that piece or that scene or whatever, and you can move on and you can conserve your energy to just bring it. <laughs> you just bring it for the take and then, okay, I'm going to take a break and have some snacks and then, you know, wait for a couple hours for the next take I have to do. Whereas for theater, you're really building up a different kind of endurance because you have to do the show beginning to end, night after night. Mm-hmm. You have maybe shorter days, but you also have to learn how to feed off the audience in a really different way. Then playing to a camera, right? Playing to a camera just feels totally different. You don't get also real-time reactions. <laughs> you don't know if you're being funny or, you know, too melodramatic or something. I mean, that's one of the things that, that we notice. Uh, it, you know, we're usually recording in, in a basement or, or in a sound studio or over Zoom. Mm-hmm. And, and when we tell jokes, we can just edit in uh, you know, or edit out the pauses that uh, give away the fact that our jokes aren't funny, and then it makes us seem hilarious. But when we're doing this live, uh, if a joke falls flat, it just sits there on the the table like a dying frog. Um. <laughs> yeah, you know, I remember this experience actually. Of we were creating a show uh, at Empty Space with our director, and you know, because they just keep watching us doing these scenes and these moments over and over, we'd get very little reaction from them. And then on our opening night, we went out. We perform the show with all of our seriousness and the audience is laughing. And we get off stage and we're like, I think we're in a comedy. Who knew? <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> that would be so surreal to me. Like, wait, I think we misunderstood what we were doing yeah. now that we understand it. Yeah. So going back to, to something that Mike mentioned about, you know, acting on stage and acting for the camera two entirely different types of performance. Why then do you think that there are so many movies that are adaptations of stage plays? What is the appeal of bringing something from the stage to the screen? I think there's a lot of different reasons, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, you just really have to ask the director or the producer, but I would think, if it were me, A, I would feel like that's a way to bring that story to the mainstream, right? Because, I mean, let's face it, like, like film... Everyone goes to watch film. Um, The other thing, though, I think is that there are a lot of actors out there and a lot of film creators out there who started in theater, right? And so with theater, there's this beauty of reliving this role or this story night after night. You get to know it so intimately, and it never really leaves you. And I think when you do do film, you have this desire to want to do your own interpretation of it in the medium that you're, you know, living, breathing, working in. Right. I got to think too, like, you know, with, with, with certain exceptions of like maybe Broadway or something, for the most part, I mean, you know, theater is, is limiting in terms of you've got the physical space you're in and a limited number of effects you can kind of bring and theatrics you can bring to it. But really, it's it's got to be rooted in character first. So when mm-hmm. you're making those adaptations, you're like, listen, we know this story and the characterizations work really strong. The rest of it we can just add in. Mm-hmm. But you know you're starting from a really strong place with that adaptation. And it, it, you don't need to worry about like, well, it doesn't matter if the characters suck because we'll just fill it in with VFX that will wow everyone. <laughs> they won't care what the dialogue is. Or like, you know, like there's a thing, I think, I think a thing about starting with a stage play mm-hmm. and adapting it is, you know you're starting with a story that has compelled people in a very limited setting. Yeah. Without all the the sort of bells and whistles, and you can add those things in and build it up and do it creatively, but you know you're starting from a strong core. Yeah, I've got exactly. to feel like that's at least part of it, you know. 
Yeah, I think so too. You know, it's that it's it's at the end of the day, there's something about theater that keeps it so human, right? Like yeah. that's why it's so thrilling. Like I think I. I I am always going to want to desire to do theater because of the live aspect of it. It's not just going through the piece night after night, but it's things could go wrong. <laughs> you know, you're going to have different audiences every night. You're going to have, you know, one night an audience that's going to laugh their butts off and then the next night maybe an audience that's just totally uncomfortable through the whole thing. And that's something that you just kind of feed off of as a as a performer and then you kind of ride that and you know sometimes you feel like you don't have them with you and you try to pull them in it's just this game right it's such a thrilling game that that i don't think will ever really translate into the process of film right i mean theaters survived several thousand years i think that's a pretty good <laughs> uh, 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 you know vote of confidence for the medium and now we have this this kind of new phenomenon of um, movies being adapted into stage plays mm-hmm. as well. So it's it's mm-hmm. the reverse of, of what you just said, Mike, where people watch these movies and then they think that how would I translate that to stage? And so, you know, in the in the 80s, you had the um, Little Shop of Horrors. Right yeah. now on Broadway, Beetlejuice is one of the biggest shows, <laughs> uh, which I yeah. would not have guessed. Yeah, um, and Harry Potter. I mean, look what's happening there, yeah. right? I think my favorite is the uh, Mel Brooks, The Producers, which was a film that was adapted into a stage musical, which was then adapted back into a <laughs> the- which was adapted back into another musical for film. I was yeah. like, man, this, this has just really had a journey as yeah. a storyline. Yeah. I think the thing that still perplexes me the most especially as like a classically trained singer is when opera is adapted to film because I have yet to see it done in a way where you're going to get that visceral reaction you do when you're sitting in an opera house (laughs) watching and feeling the entire story right and the emotions like opera and music and having a live orchestra and live voices like that it it just penetrates you in such a different way like bouncing off the walls and I know that the Met tried to do all these you know um screenings and stuff but it just doesn't uh I don't know I I think that you know maybe it's close but it kind of reminds me of this exercise I had when I was in university and I was doing this music and new technology class and we had to um use this uh software to replicate different sound waves and you know there was like different instruments and whatever and then the last one was the human voice and trying to replicate the human voice none of us got it and in the end our teacher our professor showed us what that wave like one of those waves could look like and we're like that's impossible that's impossible to create through technology like that Mm. Fascinating. interesting um Pam, when we reached out to you and asked if you were be interested in doing this, you said, uh, absolutely, I'm a big fan of movies. So kind of <laughs> stepping away from the, the theater side of things, let's let's talk a little bit about about what movies what movies you enjoy, what about movies speaks to you, what movies do you enjoy watching, like when you're in you know in a mood and you just want to sit down and watch like comfort uh, movie, what do you watch? So maybe let's let's start there. When you're just when you just want to be wrapped up in a nice blanket of comfort in a movie, what do you watch? <laughs> I don't know if I have those comfort movies to be honest. I mean, I really like horror films. I'm behind on my on my horror films, but, but those aren't your cozy blanket those films. Are, those are maybe my cozy blanket <laughs> films. Yeah, I mean, when I think about my experience of watching Hereditary, which I thought was 
Why? I gotta watch like Midsummer, which I haven't watched yet. I was, yeah, I was cozied up in my hot chocolate and my blanket. <laughs> Decided to watch Hereditary. Nothing like a cozy curse to, to like <laughs> warm the hearth. Hey, man, you know what? It, everybody's got their thing. I think the thing about movies for me, though, is that I do really have an interest in directing, in filmmaking myself. So, you know, I'm already making a transition into directing as a theater artist, but I, I still have this desire to make my own movies. And I remember watching Fanny and Alexander by Ingmar Bergman. And I was like, the first time I watched that, I was like, yeah, this is, this is like film that is theater. For the first time, I right. felt like I was watching something that was like theater, but it was done well. It was done effectively. It gave me the same kind of feeling. It showed me that, you know, the magic of theater is that you can do anything. <laughs> you don't have to make things like have rationale or be natural on stage. In fact, you're in a theater. You can you can really make magic happen. Anything can happen. And so when I watched that film, I was like, this is... This is a director who knows how to play the game of film, right. you know, with their audience. So that kind of put me on this path of just kind of always having that being, you know, on the back burner for me of like, okay, one day, one day I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a transition into filmmaking. Cool. Um, out in theaters, if not now, then soon, is, is Steven Spielberg's new movie, The Fablemans, which is based on his own childhood. Mm-hmm. And one of the elements in the film is that the, the young character of him is constantly seeing the world through how they would film it as a, as a movie. As someone who is interested in directing and who has directed on stage, do you catch yourself from time to time in reality saying like I would stage that differently oh all the time I make mental notes of things in my life where I'm like this is a scene this is another scene this is exactly how how I would frame it you know (laughs) all that stuff I got some advice too from um one of my mentors where they're like if you're interested in filmmaking then start by taking pictures so like Mm -hmm. I I guess like I I secretly do that I don't really show my (laughs) pictures to people but sometimes I'll just take pictures and you know with our with our phones that are getting better cameras and stuff it's a little easier to just kind of do that in the moment and with all the traveling I do too um actually when you guys were talking about Star Wars earlier it made me think about I was recently in September I was in Tunis in Tunisia and someone there told me that when the first Star Wars film was being made episode four um they're, they had like very little budget for costumes. So they told the costume designer, like, look, just go to the market and buy whatever. And, and that's kind of where the costumes and Sounds the aesthetic right. came yep. from. And I was like, when they told me that, I was like, oh my God, yeah. Yeah, because I really, like I shop in those markets. I've seen those clothes and I feel like I'm just never going to see Star Wars the same way because I'm going to see all of, you know, the things that I try to barter for in the or bargain with the vendors for in the markets and stuff. But anyway, yeah, I think about that kind of stuff all the time. I, I think about, um, you know, even pitching like a TV series or something because I think... I've got a lot of material I've been collecting over the years. <laughs> are, are you allowed? Do, can you talk about it? like what kind of a TV series do you want to make? Or you don't have to disclose <laughs> that. But I'm very curious to know. Uh, well, you know, I think it'd be. It, it's it, it, 
you got to talk about the things you know, right? And so I think I, it'd be kind of along the lines of something like slings and arrows, um, right. which, yeah. which is it, it's the lived experience that I have. But I think I'd want to also talk about being, you know, racialized artists, people growing up in this weird place of Waterloo Region that's like a... You know, the cousin you defend, but also the cousin you personally criticize all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, consider, I think CBC would probably buy that pitch, considering <laughs> that, like, there's a lot of, a lot of new creators coming up now that I think are finally starting to um, have an opportunity to, to tell mm-hmm. their stories, especially in the independent scene. And, and I think in Canada, we're maybe a little more willing to take a shot on telling a yeah. an undertold story than, yeah. than than they are in the states. Um, oh, totally. It's one of totally. the benefits I think of having like a national broadcaster that isn't sitting there necessarily constantly worried about ratings in the same way that maybe a commercial network is. It's not to say they don't worry mm-hmm. about it and they don't make the right decisions all the time, but if it's done well, it's like they can actually take bigger risks. Yeah. Because they don't sit there and say, "Well, if this doesn't, you know, if this doesn't hit this many viewers, we're cooked." I'd sure. watch. I'd watch six half-hour episodes about uh, <laughs> community theater and, and problems of racism. I think that sounds like a great. Uh, That's actually pretty much the synopsis for the show. <laughs> see, there you go. But I think you could. It, yeah, like I think it would be really compelling, right? And I think there's yeah. a really <clears throat> the, there is a story that you can tell there that and it's time would find an audience. Mm-hmm. It's time because it wouldn't be like the only one, right? Yeah. To be to be the first one is is difficult. To be the second one is risky too. But after the second one, you're like, okay, now we're starting to shift what is being normalized on television, what we see on television, what we see in film. And to and to see this happening in a very mainstream area like the Marvel films and things like that too is something that is it's giving me a bit of hope, you know, like maybe on the ground, some days I really feel disheartened and, and uh, let down. But then when I do look at what is actually happening in the mainstream and, and those that are speaking up and speaking out and able to, to have agency, there has been a shift, right, over the past past decades. It was interesting today, I don't know if, if you saw Simi Liu uh <laughs> tweeted about scorsese criticizing marvel films or whatever and he was like listen no he's like listen i i love scorsese i think he's a phenomenal filmmaker but he'd have never given a kid like me a chance yeah. and marvel did that for not just me but for so many other racialized actors oh yeah to discredit them is like nonsense right <laughs> and he was like i never would you're never going to see me in a scorsese film and yeah. I cannot help but appreciate Marvel for doing the work that they're doing. You know, he's not to say they're perfect films all the time, but he's like, (laughs) and they're definitely different films than what Scorsese is trying to make. But this kind of like turning your nose up at it when you would never have done those things. Yeah. Like, I mean, what Marvel is doing is they're also trying. You can see them trying to be responsible and accountable. It's not just about making good films. It's actually about shifting. I think it's about shifting the industry. And I feel like there's that conscious choice coming from them, right? Um, and and you, you see that across the whole board. It's not just about casting, but it's about who they're choosing as their directors and their design team and their mm-hmm. musicians and all of that. Like, it's it's quite, I think it's quite uh, trailblazing what they're doing. It's, um, you know, I, I, I do work with the, the Grand River Film Festival, and, and one of the things that fills me with hope and joy is every year when we're looking at the you know what films are on the festival circuit and what films we might be able to choose 
um, more and more every year, it is um, minority voices and underrepresented mm-hmm. voices. And, and the independent film industry right now is just bubbling over with fantastic um, women directors and directors of color, and especially here in Canada, so many indigenous filmmakers who are finally mm-hmm. being given the opportunity um, to, to tell their stories. And I know that in 10 years, that's all going to percolate to the top because that's just the way the industry works. The, the, the mainstream industry is always looking for talent. And at this point, the majority of the talent are going to be minority voices. And that means that in about 10 years, the mainstream is just going to be filled with those stories. And it's so... Yeah. It, it, I can't wait for it, yeah. so long as the industry doesn't implode. Uh, <laughs> I hope so, yeah. I hope it keeps going in that direction. We got to make sure it keeps going in that direction. We got to keep pushing, you know? I mean, I recently just read this article about criticism that the new Black Panther film, uh, Wakanda Forever, was getting because of the casting of either those who were indigenous or those who had dark-skinned indigenous features. And there was a criticism from, you know, the this... South American uh, TV and film industry, some of those in the industry, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them were saying you can't just hire people because of the color of their skin. So as opposed to celebrating the fact that there's an indigenous character in a Marvel film, you know, that's not just a villain, um, there's this criticism that's happening. There's still this like resistance to the change, right? So we got to keep we got to keep pushing forward because I think, yeah, it's going to take 10 years of us continuing that push. So then we do see that tipping point. I think the only valid criticism of Wakanda forever is that they digitally removed Namor's Wang through most of the film. So uh, am I allowed to say Wang on live radio? Yeah. All right, cool. Getting the nod from the producer. We're good. We're good. (laughs) It's independent. We're fine. Um, So the movie that we're about to watch is uh, Radio Land Murders, uh, a movie from, correct me if I'm wrong here, 1993? 94. 94. Um, was not a, uh, a critical or commercial hit when it came out. Produced by George Lucas during his <laughs> I now have Star Wars money phase and I'm just going to make whatever I want. Um, I like that his like vanity project was a screwball 1930s throwback murder <laughs> mystery comedy. Like... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> of yeah. course it was, but also, wow. Maybe, I, I, maybe the guy just did some dinner theater, you know. <laughs> I'm here for it. I mean, I, you know, say what you will about George Lucas, but the fact that he made a Star Wars movies and then he's like, I'm going to make Willow, I'm going to make Indiana Jones, <laughs> I'm going to make uh, Radioland Murders, and I'm going to make Howard the Duck. Uh, and that's going to be the legacy, presumably, that I leave behind. <laughs> guy really was like a nerd. Like in in a way, it's like like Star Wars did not make him cool, no. Right, like he stayed true to being a nerd and was like, nope, we're making Willow, which is like you know his nerdy Lord of the Rings knockoff. I mean, which I love. Willow Willow screams. Uh, I've played D anD D for the last fifteen years, and now I have enough money to film my campaign. Um, <laughs> the thing is, he got to have some like awesome actors in Radioland Murders too because of that. Easy. <laughs> Got to play with, you know, some of his, uh, some some really great talent there. Yeah, and I mean, anyone who's listening, you still have 10 minutes to, to get yourself down to the Apollo uh, and see it. It is a very strange mishmash of, like, 
the the best 50s and 60s talent and some of them in their final film roles because they were getting <laughs> getting up there but like George Burns and and uh, Rich Little and maybe in retrospect names that wouldn't have been a big box office draw in the 90s but um is this quirky little you know crime comedy about working in 1930s radio plays and and that's it's it's something that doesn't come up often but often enough that you're like something about that format works well f- on film you know Gale- Garrison Keillor made what a prairie home companion prairie ham- yeah. home companion the same thing it's i don't know filming people talking into microphones has an appeal <laughs> Radio, it's coming radio, back. You gotta see, man. The trend is coming back. As I said, I all those YouTube uh, channels. Haven't seen the movie, but I'm really looking forward to the talent. I mean, I, I, I'm gonna bet the acting is pretty awesome. Yeah, I think so. I'm excited because uh, what's his name? Uh, the lead in it, Ben Bam Bam or whatever. Ben? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, he was in like the, the the couple that created Friends. He was in a show they created before Friends that was like a sitcom, all based on like old television stuff but it was basically a kid who was raised by a television and he just like thinks through his entire life uh through television clips like it's, <laughs> like he has like he'll like try to be make sense of a situation and he always equates it to like quotes from old tv series and it recycled quote like clips from old tv shows you're just describing my youth mike <laughs> i know i was gonna say that too references like, oh, that nobody else got <laughs> uh i brought this up when we were playing this but like you know i'd love it Something, whether it's in theater, in radio dramas, in film, in novels, whatever, the theme of murder seems to be very transportable. (laughs) I'm curious as to, I mean, why you think that might be, but also why it makes such great comedy fodder. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know, right? Like, it's easy to make a comedy about about murders. I was thinking about this because it's like, well, maybe it's because murder can go either way, right? You can make it serious, you can make it funny. The person who was murdered has all these relationships, so you suddenly have all this added suspense and drama. And there's just so many easy layers you could tap into with that. I don't know. That's my theory, maybe. I guess, too, like, I mean, from a stand, like, you can do it in a very confined setting. So, for like things like you can do like a radio thing with one person narrating a scenario right you can do it as a stage play you can do it as a you know tv series like um what am i thinking of what did it bring oh twin peaks yeah Mm -hmm. which i watched recently i mean uh, hitchcock you know did rope which was also a stage play you know it's it's very easy like here is one room and here is a murder mystery and and no one is allowed to to leave the room I, i think i mentioned when we were talking before the recording you know we're in a bit of a murder mystery renaissance with uh, these new Perot movies out, and now the 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 Knives Out series, mm-hmm. and and Netflix is just filled with murder, um, both documentary and. Um, I mean, it has been for a long time. That seems to be Netflix's <laughs> thing. It's it's just Netflix is just going to become what A and E became. It's just going to be a constant barrage of of true crime. Um, <laughs> but hey, it seems to be paying their bills. So. Um, well, you know, Pam, this has been absolutely wonderful to, to talk to you uh, on stage, uh, which was kind of our our starting point. We were like, well, we're going to be live. Why don't we Why don't we get someone who, who does theater and is used to being on stage? And you were gracious enough to, to come here, and we really do appreciate it. Yeah. Um, do you have anything coming up at Empty Space? We do. On December 1st, we're actually doing our fundraiser performance of the show that we did take 
uh, on tour that we performed in Tunisia, as well as Egypt and Morocco. We're doing that show called The Last 15 Seconds at the Registry Theatre, and it is a fundraiser to establish a bursary to support emerging and immigrant artists. And it's followed by a home-cooked Middle Eastern meal that we are all making ourselves and we'll be serving afterwards. So... Mm. Yeah, if you want to come down, take in some theater that might knock your socks off. It does have some music. And then enjoy some some food and and some good company. And that's December 1st at the registry. That's right. Yeah. Art and food, definitely the two ways to motivate me to do anything. (laughs) So, yes. Can't Um, have one without the other. No, really. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Pam. Thank you so much. Um, So if you're not here yet, Get down here. Radio Land Murders starts in uh, six minutes. Uh, Mike, it's been great seeing you live again. I know. This is fun to do. We should do this more often. Yeah. That'd be nice. (laughs) The Apollo people, if you're listening, have us back. The Apollo. Oh, wait, we we're have, coming back. We are coming back. But the, I, before we, we hawk that, I just want to say the Apollo is such a wonderful host and such a gracious uh, place for us to, to sit on their brand new stage, which is not rickety at all. And I really, really love not uh, feeling like I'm going to fall off at any moment. Um, but this is I could sit here and talk to you, Mike, for hours. This is the funny thing about this podcast is uh, when we get together to plan the podcast is we just talk about movies the whole time anyways. So we figure we might as well just record it. We, we really should <laughs> just constantly have a, a live mic near one of us. So No, this has been great. All right. Uh, I'll see you again in the new year uh, on this stage again. Um, and for Midtown Radio and the mid-credit scene, enjoy the movie. Thank you to the Apollo for hosting us, Midtown Radio for broadcasting us, Pam Patel, and all of you for joining us. We'll be back on stage at the Apollo in January for another live broadcast, so stay tuned to apollocinema.ca for details. You can find Pam on Twitter at PamMTSpace, and you can find MTSpace Theater on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TheMTSpace. Clark can be found on Twitter and Instagram at TheLibraryClark. And I can be found on Twitter at Mikey underscore Pereira. And the show can be found on those platforms at MidCreditScene. Want to get in touch with us? Email us at MidCreditScenePod at gmail.com. Our theme music is The Show Must Be Go by Kevin McLeod. Our logo design is by John Johnson. Find his amazing work at Bareface.ca. MidCreditScene podcast can be heard every month on Midtown Radio, broadcasting from the voice box of Polly's Robot in Rocky Four. See you at the movies. Thank you.